We will go ahead and get started. Um, we are continuing in the book of First Peter today. We are in First Peter. We are looking at verses six through nine today. So, if you have your Bible with you, and if you can, if you're able, uh, would you mind standing as I read? I'm going to read verses three through nine. So, three through five is what we looked at last week. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. Let me get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You guys can be seated. Let's pray real quickly. Father, we just come to You, Lord, once again, and, and, and we just ask You, Father, to meet with us today through Your Word, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray, Father, God, that Your, that your Spirit, Lord, would, would just apply the truth of Your Word, God, to Your people here today, Father. That we, would, that we would glean from Your Word, that we would be encouraged from Your Word, that we would be strengthened from Your Word. And Lord, please help me to communicate it accurately and truthfully to your people, Lord. In Christ's name, Amen. <clears throat> okay, so the title of the message today is Greatly Rejoice. I, I actually, I don't usually do this. Probably the first time I've done it. I actually asked Shiloh to sing that song for us. To get us in, the, in, the, in the, the whole mindset of rejoicing. Okay, we've got so much to rejoice in. Hopefully, you guys already see that, already know that, but hopefully by God's grace we'll even see more of that today. So really by way of introduction, I just want to ask a question, guys. What You don't have to answer out loud, okay? But what do you rejoice in? What do you find yourself rejoicing in? A new job? I just take it with the message that you get. Huh? I just take it with the message that you get. Amen. Yeah. Because you get to be in other ways. We have got so much to be thankful for. Amen. Amen. We can't take it with other Yeah. Amen. So, I, hey, so I said, I've got a few things just to get our mind thinking. And these aren't bad things, okay? These aren't bad things. New job, good health, right? If you've been bad health, you know, we should rejoice when our health is good. Um, hopefully, you rejoice in your spouse if you're married. Faithful friends, right? Our freedoms that we still have. We can tend to start to moan and groan about the freedoms we're afraid we're going to lose, but we still got a lot of freedoms. Your family, obviously. Hopefully your church you can rejoice in. And so guys, all of these things are great. Amen. But what Peter is sharing, what he's going to help these... See, he's writing to, this, to these dispersed believers that are scattered throughout the provinces, provinces of, of Rome and they're under persecution. And so Peter is helping these persecuted believers really throughout the book and through our text today, to see the constant joy that they should have in light of their salvation. And so although these things that we looked at, they're great to rejoice in, guys, but they're not the greatest thing to rejoice in. Hopefully we can see that today when we look at the text, because a lot of these things that we mentioned, they're going to fade away, right? They're temporal. I mean, I'm thankful for a good job. I'm thankful for my health, all of these things, but eventually these things are going to fade away. And so what's, what's going to be able to carry us through trials? What's going to be able to... You know, he's trying to comfort these believers that are under persecution. 
And so He's helping them and us, right, through the written Word, through the Holy Spirit, to see a few things, guys, foundational things that, that He wants us to rejoice in. Okay? So that's, that's really the, that's really the, uh, the theme. Obviously, the, the title of the message is to greatly rejoice. So, I've got the sermon broke up in four points today. The first one is going to be really just a way of review from last week. Um, especially when you're going through verse by verse like we're doing, it's always good to review. And so the review is just, I mean, it's laid out right here in the first part of verse 6. So, the, so point number one, by way of our first point and by way of review, for because we had many people weren't here last week. Obviously, you guys weren't with us last week, so it'll help you in today's message. Uh, look at verse 6. We're doing 6 through 9. And the first two words, he says, In this, okay? In this you greatly rejoice. So point number one is uh, to rejoice in, in your inheritance. That's what we looked at verses 3 through 5. So when he says, In this, it just simply means those, those three verses above it, okay? In this you greatly rejoice. Now the phrase... In verse 6, you greatly rejoice. It's not an imperative. In other words, it's, He's not commanding them to rejoice. It's a present indicative. In other words, it's a declarative statement. In other words, Peter says, this is something that you're doing. Okay, it's a, present, it's a present tense. So in this, you greatly rejoice. In this, you are greatly rejoicing. So let's look at the this by way of review. Verses 3-5. through five. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. The first thing we see, obviously this is going to be a quick review of our uh, you know, passages that we looked at for an hour last week. But one of the first things we see is that, that God caused us to be born again. And, the, and, and again, he's, he's, he's saying, in this you rejoice. We rejoice in the fact, guys, that God was active in our salvation. We were hopelessly lost. And God came to our rescue. Amen. And we even see His motive in verse 3. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. We talked about last week that really, um, mercy is reserved for those in a pitiful condition. You realize that? That's who mercy is reserved for. Guys, Apart from Christ, all of us were, and those who are not in Christ are in a very pitiful condition. But mercy is really reserved for not only those who are in a pitiful condition, because all sinners are in a pitiful condition outside of Christ. But it's it's for those who realize their condition. It's it's for those who have been humbled and, and, and realize the sinfulness of their own heart. That's who God's mercy is for. So it was, his, it was His mercy that was His motive in causing us to be born again. And then it says, to a living hope in verse 3. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Really, it's just the idea of... Uh, the, the whole idea of hope, we looked at what it was not and what it was. We looked at the idea that this hope that it's talking about, it's not a... It's not uncertainty or wishful thinking, okay? We used the illustration last week. Uh, I was hoping the Plangman twins would be here today because I wanted to use them last week and only one of them was here and they're both gone. I forgot, they, I think they were out of town today. But, but the whole idea we looked at, this it's not wishful thinking like when your favorite team, okay? When your favorite football team is playing the rival and let's say maybe you know the other team's better and you're hoping your team will win, I use the illustration of TCU against OU, but hey, you know. Now, you, you could apply that with any, any sports team. Just think of a game. You, you, you have a hope. It's an uncertain hope. And it can even be a wishful thinking hope that your team's going to win. Okay, that's, not the, that's not what this word means. But rather, it's a confident expectation based on a fact or a promise. Okay, And, and the illustration we use of that was... Um, when your mom told you she's going to make your favorite breakfast the next morning, man, you've got a hope. You've got a hope that your your mom, because because she promised you, you can trust your mom. So there's a there's an expectation based on a promise. That's what this hope is here in verse three. Or that's that's more what it's like. 
It's a hope based on the promises of God. It's a living hope. It's a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Well, it's living because this hope, it may mature throughout the Christian life. As we, as we, as we walk with Christ, this, this living hope matures. But I think the better idea of it, it's a living hope because of what it says right there in verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why it's a living hope. Because Christ is risen. He has risen from the dead. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. That's why we have hope. And last week, the title of our message was Our Living Hope. And guys, our living hope is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He conquered death. If you're in Christ, you have conquered death through being identified with Jesus Christ. And you have a hope. And then in verse 4, part of, part of the in this you greatly rejoice, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. We see we have hope in an inheritance. It says, which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. It's imperishable. It's not subject to decay like things on this earth. It's undefiled. Our inheritance is undefiled. Beloved, it's unstained by sin. I asked our people last week, you guys get tired of battling with sin? Were you, were you looking forward to the day when you don't have, no longer have a battle with sin? That's what's awaiting you in your inheritance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that's right. It's unfading. It will never wither. It will never grow dim. Never lose its beauty. I told our folks last week, some of the ladies and guys that have been working very hard, thanks to you guys, your, your kindness and allowing us to remodel the, uh, the nursery. You know, but even that, the beauty will fade away eventually. Will it not? It will fade away. But not this inheritance. It says it's reserved in heaven for you. The phrase meaning it's guarded or watched over it's an already existing inheritance being carefully guarded in heaven. Okay, it's, it's, it's reserved in heaven, guys. It's protected. It's not going to be lost due to human error. You know, when you make a reservation at a place maybe months in advance and they lose your reservation, right? That, that's not going to happen. Our inheritance is being, it's reserved, it's protected. And then in verse 5, all this still part of the introductory point. In this you greatly rejoice. It says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in other words, guys, God is protecting us by His power. He is protecting us. The word protected is very, very important. We looked at it last week. It's a military term. And it can mean to protect someone from danger or to prevent someone from escaping. Okay, to prevent someone from escaping. You guys familiar with the words of Christ in John chapter 10 when He says nobody can, will be able to, talking about His sheep, His disciples, His believers in Christ, who He calls His sheep, says nobody will be able to snatch them out of My hand. Nobody will be able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Why? Because of this word right here. Because we are protected. And again, that word means to prevent someone from escaping. You can't jump out of His hand when, when, when you're His. He has adopted you into His family and we're protected from outside danger and protected from escaping. We're in the, we're in the sovereign protection of Almighty God. Amen. So our faith, it says in verse 5, we are protected by the, by the power of God through faith. Really just the idea, guys, that, that as a true believer in Jesus Christ, we will persevere to the end. Okay? That, that's talking about our faith here. And the reason we persevere to the, to the end is because He preserves us. He keeps us. And that's His power. Right? What, what's the verse in um, is it Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work. He who began a good work. He's the one that began a work. He will see to it that it comes to completion. Okay? Amen? We're protected by God. We're in His hands and we're protected because of His power. And then the last phrase in verse 5, it says, uh, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just the whole idea, guys, that the word salvation, it means deliverance. To be delivered. To be saved. To be delivered. 
It's got three different aspects to it. We are delivered, because in the Bible you'll see it says we have been saved. That's when we're justified. We're declared righteous. And then other times in the Scriptures you'll see we are being saved. That's, that's, that's we are being saved. We are being sanctified. That's part of salvation. And then, and then it talks about we will be saved. That's glorification. When our salvation is final. That's what it's talking about in verse 5 here. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. It's talking about that final that final phase of salvation when we are delivered from the presence of sin. Justification, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. When God first saves you, He declares you righteous, you're justified, delivered from the penalty of sin, which is hell. Our sanctification in this life, we're being delivered from the power of sin. And our glorification on that day, on that day, when Jesus Christ returns and He gives us our glorified bodies, we'll, we'll have our glorified bodies totally free from sin. Our final or our salvation will be full and complete. That's the day we're looking forward to. That's the day we're looking forward to. And in verse, now we're, now we're back in verse 6, okay guys? That was just uh, part of the review. The in this you greatly rejoice. That's what it's referring to. All of these things in verses 3 through 5. And in verse 6, he says, In this, he doesn't just say you rejoice, but you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. It's a deep spiritual joy, a rejoicing in God and what he has done. We rejoice in God, just in who he is. When you study the attributes of God, when you learn more in the Word of God who he is, it's a cause for rejoicing. When we see, as in this text, verses 3 through 5, when we see what he has done, it's a cause for us to rejoice. And again, beloved, this is not an imperative. Peter's not even commanding that, that, that these people rejoice. But again, it's a, it's a declarative statement. It's in the present tense. He says, In this you are continually rejoicing. You know what Peter's saying, guys? Peter thinks this is to be a normal part of the Christian life, that we rejoice. That's what he's saying. In these things you rejoice. And so what about you today, guys? What what about you today? I ask you this. I ask myself this. I've already asked myself this. But I ask you guys and myself, what about you today? Where is your your rejoicing meter at today? Is your rejoicing meter at high or is it kind of low? Could I, could I exhort you as your pastor to just stop? Life gets awful busy, doesn't it? We go through life. We've got a lot of responsibilities. We even, you know, even when we're spending time with God, we tend to just kind of rush through it. Kind of check it off on our list. Can I exhort you? Can I encourage you to just stop and rejoice in your inheritance? Rejoice in the salvation that God has given you. Whenever you're spending time with the Lord, beloved, before you start getting into your needs, really the idea of the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, we're to, we're to, we're to acknowledge God first. Rejoice. Don't forget to rejoice, guys. Think about these things. Who God is. Think about your inheritance that we just looked at. That it is reserved in heaven for you. That's what can cause a believer to endure any type of persecution or trial on this earth is when we realize that the God of heaven who cannot lie has our inheritance and we are protected by His power. Again, it's not a command, but it's something we all need to be reminded of. We all need to be reminded of it. So point number two, the second thing we're going to look at, still in verse 6. He says, even though... uh, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So point number one was to uh, just to kind of help your help your flow of thought through this. First of all, we, we see that we are to rejoice in our inheritance. Secondly, we see that we're to rejoice in the we're to rejoice, and I, and I'll explain as we go further in the necessity of trials. In the necessity of trials. They do serve a purpose. 
It's really the language of, if you guys want to flip over maybe just a couple pages in the Bible to your left, it's really the same language of James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through four. Listen to this. I think James is maybe even clearer on this. James chapter 1, verse 2-4. through four, He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Has anybody ever read that and you just thought, What? What is that telling me to do? That's Nettie's favorite book. (laughs) It is a good verse. When we understand what it's saying, absolutely. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We can see part of the purpose of trials right there, right? Can't we? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, which leads to spiritual maturity. And so obviously, guys, the Bible is not... God in His Word is not commanding us to just, in some perverted way, to just just rejoice of this wonderful trial that we're going through. That's not even that's not what he's saying. It's to rejoice. It's to consider it joy when we face trials, when we understand the purpose of the trials. So that's what we're really looking at today. Um, back in Peter, in, in verse six. So the first thing we're going to look at in verse six under uh, about these trials is that they are. In the the New American Standard, it says, even though now for a little while, for a little while. That phrase literally just means for a season. For a season. These trials that they're facing, they're only going to be temporary. Okay? Um, Understanding this, I mean really it's it's easy to understand. He's, He's saying you're facing these trials, but they're just for a little while in comparison to this great inheritance that I've been telling you about. So we're to rejoice. Let me, let me I'm losing my thought here. Yeah, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Think of a trial as far as the uh, the, the the where it says only a little while, the short season of a trial. You know, it's kind of like we've been getting a lot of rain, right? You know, think of most of us like. I mean, you may like rainy, dreary weather. If so, this illustration doesn't apply to you. <laughs> But if you like the sunshine, if you like the sunshine, you like green and clear skies, you know, think of the rain that we've really had over the past month or two. That rain, it can, it can get dreary. It can even get depressing sometimes, especially when you work in it. But, uh, but if you look at rain, as it's only a season and the sunshine is coming, especially with summer coming on, we can, we can, we can tend to see the purpose for the rain, right? We get, we get some good spring rains, even though it's maybe not the funnest for some of us while we're getting it, but you understand that the sunshine's coming, and because of that rain, we're not going to experience a drought. I don't know if that makes sense, but the rain's temporary. It's, it's just going to last for a little while. And that's, and that's what he's saying about these trials. He says, in these things you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, for a little while, just really talking about this life in comparison to eternity, when we think about eternity, the span of our life is a dot on a never-ending line. That's the whole idea of this little while. 2 Corinthians 4.17, listen to this. Paul says similar language. For momentary, okay, there's the word, that word momentary for a little while. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary. You already said light affliction. Do we remember who it is that's writing that? The Apostle Paul. He says momentary light affliction. Listen to a little bit about Paul's life. For a man to write that. This light affliction. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, we get an insight of some of the things Paul went through. Now this was by no means an exhaustive list. But listen to this, what he wrote. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's referring to the false teachers. He says, I speak as if insane. I, I more so. He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, 
beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then after all that, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. This is the same man in the same letter who described these as momentary light affliction. Beloved, these are temporal, is what he's saying. When we think about what this man and many others have gone through and are going through now in our day, these are temporal But your inheritance, beloved, this is the things we're to rejoice in. Your inheritance, the things that are not seen, are eternal. We have got to get our mind wrapped around these things. They're eternal. And then secondly, we see in in, in verse 6, not only it says, even though for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That phrase, if necessary, just means that that it is when they serve a purpose in the mind of God. When they serve a purpose in believers' lives. That's what it's saying, guys. So so what it's saying, it's real simple. If if God sees it necessary, He's going to send you through trials. Well, He must see it very necessary. Because we go through a lot of trials, do we not? So just, that, just tell yourself that. If you're going through a trial, God sees it necessary that you go through the trial. So what we need to do, we need to line up our thinking with God and realize that He has a purpose in it. Did you know He has a purpose in your trials, guys? We're going to look at it more in the next, in the next verse. But he has a plan for you. He does. He has, a, he has an all-wise plan. We don't know all things. He does. He knows exactly what we need. We're going to look at a couple of examples of how God uses trials in our lives to serve a purpose. 2 Corinthians 12. Back over in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, we can see a purpose in the Apostle Paul's life. Very familiar passage. Thorn in the flesh. So let's look at this real quickly and maybe see the purpose God had for this trial in Paul's life. So Paul had been captured up to heaven, been given a a great revelation. Great vision of heaven. And then in verse 7 it says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, here it is, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He says it two times. He says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I become strong. You can see the purpose of that trial right there in those verses in Paul's life. To humble him. To make him more dependent upon Jesus Christ. And then let's look at another one real quickly in in 2 Corinthians again, chapter 1, verses just 3 and 4. I was going to read verse 3 through 7, but 3 and 4 should cover it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves were comforted from God. You know what that is, beloved? That is experiential knowledge from walking with Christ. You could have the most refined scholar, theologian, pastor, 
who could quote to you the whole Bible, and he could understand this in principle, but you get a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, that has been through that specific trial, that also understands the Word of God, and they know it on a level that nobody else can know it, and they are able to comfort another as they go through that. And you can just think of examples, even in our church, where there have been people able to comfort one another from a trial that we had already been through and and received the comfort from God. Does that make sense? It's an experiential knowledge. These are just a few examples. We could look at many. And we can see the purposes in our trials. And it also says in verse 6, there are various trials, okay? In other words, trouble comes in many forms and many colors. Obviously, the context of this letter, the big trial or affliction they were in was, again, persecution. So that's in the back of Peter's mind, this persecution that they're going through, guys. But because of this word, various trials, guys, it it, it refers to any trials we go through. That's what this applies to. You know, but this persecution they faced, guys, they were under severe persecution. A couple weeks ago, I had mentioned that that Nero would... would, um, he would tie these Christians to stakes and, and burn them, use them as human torches for his garden parties. One of the other things I forgot to mention is that he would, he would sew them in animal skins and feed them to the wild beasts. So these are, these are some of the things that they were facing. These are some of the things that these people who, Peter, who Peter's writing to were facing and he's trying to comfort them and all of these things. And so, beloved, when persecution comes, guys, we need, okay, that's the point of going through this letter, we need to already have made these things a habit in our Christian life. Remembering who God is, remembering what He has done for us, learning to rejoice in these things, to understand who He is and what He has done, to rejoice, beloved, in our salvation. Do you practice rejoicing in your salvation? Think about this, guys. When we are rejoicing in our inner man, when you're truly rejoicing in Christ, you're abiding in Christ, you're spending time with Christ, and your heart is rejoicing because you understand who you were, does praise and proclamation not naturally come out? Amen. It just naturally comes out. You want to praise Him and you want to proclaim Him to others. It reminds me of in Acts, I was just reading my, my personal reading, I think it's Acts chapter 8, where they were under the church was under great persecution from Saul. And it says they were scattered all over the areas and they went about proclaiming and preaching. That's what happens, guys, when we truly rejoice in Him. We truly rejoice in Him. So, beloved, we need to trust our wise Heavenly Father that we only face trials when He sees it as necessary in His plan. Amen? So when you face trials, remember that God sees it necessary for you to face that trial. It's easy to say, right? but it's not so hard to remember. Listen to Psalm 119.71. The writer says, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. That same idea of of, of during the affliction, God teaches us His Word experientially in a way that just not reading it. You can read it. You can have an understanding up here, maybe even be able to teach it, but we truly learn it when we're afflicted, when we're in that furnace of affliction. And so point number three, look at verse seven. Point number three. See, number two was rejoice in the necessity of trials. The next thing we're going to look at is by understanding the purpose of trials. So we're still looking at the purpose. Even in a, in a better way here. A more clear way. Verse seven so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So we just looked at some other purposes to humble us, right? To help us learn how to minister to others. But in this text, we're actually going to see one of the grand overarching purposes of trials here in verse 7. He says, so that the proof of your faith. Why do we go through trials? That's the question we all ask, right? Why do we go through these trials? Peter deliberately uses this analogy, guys, in verse 7, of gold as a way of saying that trials are a means that God uses to purify and to refine His people. Okay? To purify and to refine His people. Or the, the faith of His people. To purify and to refine our faith. Listen to Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver... I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Think of a furnace, guys. It's that same comparison. It's that same analogy that Peter's using. You guys remember the story of Job, right? Our brother of ancient times who suffered a lot from the hands of God. Think of the furnace that he was in, guys. Think how God continually turned up the heat on the furnace that Job was in. That furnace of affliction. God kept bringing the heat. Remember, He gave Satan permission. He kept bringing the heat. He allowed Satan to take his his wealth. He allowed Satan to take all of his livestock. Remember how wealthy he was. Many of his servants, just one after another. And then even his children. The, 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 The furnace of affliction was just heating up and heating up and heating up. All of these one after another. And then a little time later than that, Satan afflicted Job with boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. But through all that, guys, you can read later in Job. Through all of that, through bad counsel from his friends, if you guys remember his friends, they meant well, but they gave him some bad counsel. Very insensitive. Bad counsel even from his wife, right? Curse God and die. And then later through a humbling conversation with the Lord, we see Job holding on to his integrity and worshiping his God. We see Job understanding his God even in a better way than he did before. We see Job holding on to these things. His faith, in other words, guys, was proven. Back in 1 Peter uh, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, Job's faith was proven to be genuine in the furnace of affliction. He came out. If you ever want to remember really in a nutshell what the book of Job teaches us is that neither Satan or anybody else can destroy genuine saving faith. It will endure to the end. And Job is an example of it. The trials burn away the impurities in our faith, guys. We've got a lot of impurities in our faith. And the trials burn those things out. Gold for centuries had been commonly understood as the most precious and lasting of material possessions. But it says in this text that our faith is even more precious. Our faith is even more precious. Obviously, it's it's eternal. It's going to last. And you know what, guys? God loves being trusted. You You know that? God loves being trusted. What does it say in Hebrews 11? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that tells us that genuine faith pleases God. So it is more precious than the precious commodity of gold. Literally, the word means much more. Being more precious, it means much more. Gold is also one of the most durable of all substances. But even it's going to fade away. It's perishable. So he says, so that the proof of your faith, right there in verse 7, the proof of your faith. Flip over to Genesis chapter 22. I'm actually going to read an account out of there. The account of Abraham Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. You guys remember the, the promises that God made to Abraham That he would have this great host of people, right? 
these this 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 uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, yeah, the nations more more numerable than the sands of the sea. But it was going to come through Isaac. It was going to come through Isaac. So just as we read this, think about that promise that God had given Abraham. That your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sands of the sea and they're going to come through Isaac. And now God is telling him to do this this very thing. Read it real quickly. Uh, Just verses 1-12. through Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will return, or I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do not withhold your son. Or, or sorry, I skipped the part. Hold on. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. <clears throat> Imagine the test. Have you guys ever heard? Maybe you guys have heard this, maybe you haven't. I have actually heard men say, ministers say, that God doesn't test people. Well, Verse 1 in this text says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. This was a test. Not for God, but for Abraham. We can read about, we can read about this account in James chapter 2. Okay? It, says, it says Abraham, and, and a lot of people get really confused in this text, but in, in James chapter 2, it says Abraham, through this account, was justified... Not by faith only, but by works. But what is that saying? It's really important what it's saying. Because with our text today, guys, we're talking about the proof of our faith, right? Talking about the proof of our faith. This is exactly what's going on in Genesis 22 and what James is talking about in James chapter 2. Okay, When it says Abraham is justified by works, talking about this account, that word justified, it literally means... His faith was proven. His faith was demonstrated to be genuine. That's all this is saying. He wasn't justified before God as we think about being declared righteous through something that He did. No, this account was was proof that His faith was genuine. That's the idea. Because we can read about Abraham being justified by faith about 20 years before this event ever happened. So this is a picture... For Abraham to, to recognize and for us to see that Abraham's faith was proven genuine through this test that he passed. Does that make sense? That's what this text is saying. This is an example of Scripture of how somebody being put into... You talk about a trial and God in His grace demonstrating that Abraham... And let him realize you truly do fear me. Your faith, because we see it in James chapter 2, his faith was demonstrated to be genuine saving faith. Proof. It was proof. Through the trial, as we see in this text, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory of 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So beloved, when we think about this text in Genesis 22, this illustration that we see, and when we think about our lives, God doesn't need to know whether our faith is real or whether our faith is strong. He knows it already. But He sends us through these trials, guys, so that we can know, so that we can discover, is is my faith genuine? Is it strong? Is it weak? How do you respond to trials? That's the question. God tests us when He takes us through trials. I don't have it written down, but if you think about the, uh, the parables of the soils, where Jesus talks about the Word being preached, and you have all these professions of faith, and it says some fall away very early. They, they no longer walk with Christ because of trials and temptations. So the trials reveal to some people that your faith was never genuine to begin with. So that's the idea of trials, guys. It helps us for us to know in our own minds and hearts the proof of our faith. When you endure trials and you continue to walk with Christ, and you continue to walk and you continue, not only do the trials not destroy your faith, but they strengthen you, rejoice. God has given you the proof that your faith is real, that it's strong. Rejoice in these things. It strengthens our faith. It proves it to be genuine, saving faith, beloved. And whenever you get to the point in your life you have been through the trials, you have been through the afflictions, you've been through persecution, and you're still walking with Christ. Rejoice in that. It's worth more than all the riches in the world. To have this assurance through these trials that your faith is strong. And it says in verse 7, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that, that phrase may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. It's, it's the idea of God honoring us. It's not us honoring Him. It's God honoring us. It's going to result in the praise and glory and honor from God to us. God, in other words, guys, God is going to commend you for your faithfulness. Think of the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the idea. Will we be praising God as well? Absolutely. But this is God honoring His people for their faithfulness. Even even that, even, even Jesus saying, well done, it's all from grace, right? Even the faith we have, the faithfulness we have, is because of His power. He granted it to us to begin with, and He holds us. But at the same time, at the same time, it's that, it's that tension. We're, we're responsible to be faithful. We're responsible to believe God, to trust in God. And we're, and we're going to hear, well done one day. Did you know, guys, that God, He's going to reward genuine faith. And I'm not even talking about just saving faith. But when you trust God for the smallest of things, take heart that God notices. And you'll be rewarded for that someday. That's what this is talking about. When you trust God, and maybe other people think you're silly for your faith in God, your faith in Christ, God sees it all. He doesn't miss any of it. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna reward you for it. It says that the revelation of Jesus Christ is just that day that Paul speaks about in Romans 2 when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And then lastly, point number 4, we're going to see in verse 8 and 9, Rejoice in the reality and the outcome of your faith. The reality of your faith is in verse 8. Rejoice in the reality of your faith. Verse 8, it says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The word believe... Believe in that preposition in. It's really the idea of believing into. In other words, resting oneself in Christ. Believing into Christ. It's like a bed, right? You don't just believe in the bed, but you get into the bed and you rest. It's a continual present activity to trust. To rest one's confidence in or to depend upon. It's not a one-time deal, right? Yeah, I believed in Jesus when I was five. 
But there's no evidence that you still believe in Him or that you love Him or that you're walking with Him. No, this is a, this is, again, it's a continual thing. And so this believing, we, we, see, we see in this verse that you love Him and you believe in Him. This believing and loving, they go hand in hand. The believing and loving Christ, they go hand in hand. And they're both always tied directly to obedience. Did you guys know that? Listen to the language of John 3.36. Because it's real important to understand this. Many people walk around saying, I love Jesus, right? I love Jesus. John 3.36, John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. In other words, belief and obedience are always tied together. Somebody who truly believes or trusts in Christ, their life's going to be characterized uh, as of obedience. Not perfect obedience. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So we just got to remember that, that. That believing and loving, it's really one and the same in this verse and it's always tied to a, a changed life, right? New creation in Christ. He gives us a new heart and now we start following after Christ because we love Him. But what I want you to understand in this verse, guys, is that, that Peter is implying in this verse, I think I read eight different commentaries on this verse, and they all, I think, said this exact same thing. They all saw the same thing. Peter is implying that he has, that he has seen the Lord, okay? But that his readers had not. I mean, obviously he says his readers had not, but he's implying that that he had. And I'll say more about that here in a minute. So obviously, these readers that he's writing to says they haven't seen him. And obviously, we haven't seen him, right? We have not seen Christ in the flesh. And so, this is really the heart of this verse, guys. It seems that Peter is commending them. Okay? He's commending them. Because not only had he seen and been with Christ and walked with Him for three years. He was part of the inner three, right? Him and James and John. And He was the leader of the apostles at that time. But He's saying in spite of that, what had Peter done? He had denied Him. So there's a part in Peter's life that he remembers very well. No doubt Peter would have remembered Jesus' words in John chapter 20 to, uh, 29. Remember what he said to Thomas? Remember Thomas after his resurrection? Thomas said, I won't believe it until I see his wounds, right? Until I can touch him, until I can see him. So Jesus appears to Thomas. And so no doubt Peter would have remembered this when Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You know Peter remembers this. So he's commending these believers. And beloved, I want to encourage you in this. In that that verse in John 20, the word blessed, it not only conveys the condition of joy and happiness, but it also declares that these are, are accepted by God. Accepted by God. William Hendrickson says in his commentary, faith which results from seeing is good, but faith which results from hearing is more excellent. That's what Peter's saying. Peter is commending these believers. Rejoice in this, in other words. Rejoice in the reality of your faith. Rejoice in the fact, beloved, that you haven't even seen Him. I haven't seen Him. These readers had not seen Him like the apostles had. But do you love Him? Do you believe in Him? Are you still walking with Him? Rejoice! You are to greatly rejoice in these things. Guys, we can just take these things for granted. We're talking about the King of Kings here. I've never seen Him. Have you ever thought about that? I love Him so much, but I've never seen Him. Am I crazy? Or has God saved you to see it work in your life? Is His Word real? Is His Word powerful? 
Does this living and abiding Word read you? You don't only read it, it reads you. And it says you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, what this, you know what this phrase means? It depicts shouting for that which cannot be contained. That's what it means. Hey guys, it's okay to shout for the Lord. It really is. The, the, the phrase inexpressible, it's the only time the word is used in the New Testament and it means unable to express his or her joy in human terms. You're so full of rejoicing over what God has done for you. When you realize the purpose of His trials, when you realize you've walked through these things, hardest things you can even imagine, and you still love Him, but you've never even seen Him. That's a cause for rejoicing, beloved. Rejoice in your salvation. You know, and you know what that leads to? When something that it can't, you can't express it in human terms, you know what it leads to? Music and singing unto the Lord. you got to praise Him. I think some people are scared to praise the Lord. And I'm not even talking about in a corporate setting. Praise Him in your quiet time. Praise Him when you're alone with Him. Let your kids hear you singing in the shower. Trust me, I've heard the laughs. But it's okay. Because that's what this leads to, guys. Rejoice in Christ. And it says, full of glory. At the end of verse 8, full of glory. You know what this means? It's joy that results from being in the presence of God. You guys remember what the Scripture said about Moses when he came down off the mountain? That they could see the glory of God upon him from being with God. It's glory from having been with Jesus Christ. This rejoicing, beloved, is a natural effect from being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. When you're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, and I'm talking about not just, you're not just saved, but when you are in intimate fellowship with Him, when you spend time with Him, this is a natural result. Is it not? There's nothing better you can do, guys. There's no more better spiritual advice that I can give you or anybody else can give you. And I know we say it a lot. And are there any young people in here today? I don't see our young people today. Then spending time with Jesus Christ. If you want the glory of God, you must spend time with Him. Intentional time. Not just rushing through it but spending time with Him. Everything in our Christian life flows out of that. The things we do for the Lord, the service we do for the Lord, any type of productive evangelism, ministering to our brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter, you name it, it all flows from that, from being with Christ. And then the rejoicing also comes naturally when we spend time with with the lover of our souls. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4 when the uh, apostles and disciples were under persecution. I think it was Peter and John, the authorities were threatening them and it said, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Beloved, when you spend time with the Lord, it affects people around you. It really does. You spend time with Him, abiding in Him, spend time in His Word, prayerful. When you read the Word of God, read it prayerfully. Meaning from the heart. Get it in you. Allow God to speak to you. If you want God to speak to you, open up His Word. Don't listen for an audible voice. Open up His Word. You know what what God will do for you and to you by spending time with Jesus Christ, guys? He will make you a holy man or a holy woman. That's what He will make you. If you want to be holy, spend time with Christ. Repentance. Pouring out your heart to Him. Confessing your sin to Him. Trusting in His promises. And God will begin to make you holy. 
You're not holy by the clothes you decide to wear or not wear, by the food you eat or avoid. You're holy when God starts transforming your heart. And then Robert Murray McShane, uh, 19th century Scottish theologian, says this, It is not great talents, talents which God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. He says a holy minister, you could just insert believer, a holy believer is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And there's only one way that we truly are made holy, by investing time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, God, real quickly in verse 9, we see that we're to rejoice in the outcome of our faith. This is one of those verses, guys, that was very difficult to get a, to get a handle on. To explain, and um, just you run into those sometimes. And so, I'm going to read a quote from Matthew Henry, and then bounce off of that. Okay. So this last verse it says, "Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Matthew Henry says, "Every faithful Christian is daily receiving or obtaining the salvation of his soul." Salvation is one permanent thing. Began in this life, not interrupted by death, and continued to all eternity. These believers had the beginnings of heaven in the possession of holiness and a heavenly mind. In their duties and communion with God, in the earnest of the inheritance and the witness of the divine spirit. Let me see if I can put that in English. Peter is reassuring these faithful believers, guys, that although they may be suffering, right? They were suffering intense persecution and trial. Many of you guys are facing different trials at many times. This applies to all of us. God has not forgotten about them. God has not forgotten about you when you're in your trial, when you're in the affliction. God is at work in your trials. That's what we've been looking at. He is at work in your trials. Are you rejoicing in who He is and what He has done for you? You have to ask yourself that. Are you rejoicing in who He is and what He has done for you? Do you rejoice in the fact that He loves you enough to take you through the furnace of affliction? To show you the reality and the proof of your faith. To strengthen your faith. Do you rejoice in that? Do you realize He sends you through the, through the furnace of affliction, through trials, not to hurt you, but to refine you, to refine your faith? And what about this present salvation in verse 9? I think it's really just, guys, the, the language is it's because it's a present deal. It's not talking about something future. It's obtaining. It's a now. It's here and now. It's, it's the assurance that He gives us that we are His, guys. That's the language. That we are to rejoice in this assurance that we are His. This assurance that comes through trials. It's a gift from our Heavenly Father. And we're to rejoice in these things. As we faithfully endure the trials and God continually reveals to us reveals to us that the proof of our faith. That we didn't fall away when hard times came, but we draw closer to Christ. It's, it's this cause for rejoicing, beloved. As we see the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are truly the children of God. So beloved, I think that's the language in all of this. He's exhorting us to rejoice in these things. We rejoice in our inheritance, what He has done for us. That we are protected by the power of God. We rejoice in all of these things. We rejoice when we understand that there's a purpose in our trials. That God makes us useful in the body of Christ. When we go through a season of trial and God comforts us, then we're able to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ, put our arms around them and comfort them. God sends trials into our life to, as He did Abraham for us to have the confidence that my faith is real, it's strong, it's growing. And it's something to rejoice in. 
And so, beloved, I, I, I just exhort you today and myself to rejoice continually in these things. That's the language. Rejoice continually in these things. And God will comfort you in any and all affliction, beloved, that comes from His hand. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for your, for your, uh, that, that You love us enough to, to allow us to go through trials, Lord, not to hurt us, but to, to comfort us so that we can comfort others, to teach us, to refine us, to burn off the, the chaff and all the impurities, Lord, that's in our faith, the things that You know is not good for us, Lord. You accomplish this through trials. And we thank You for that, Lord. We thank You for loving us enough, Lord, to, to allow us to be tested, to, to, that we can understand that our own faith is real, that it that can be demonstrated to others that our faith is real, Lord, that we can say to the One, as James says, show me your faith by what you say, and I'll show you my faith by what I do and by the by the demonstration of our lives, Lord. And we just thank You, Lord, for these things. We thank You for Your grace. Father, I just pray that, that, that these precious people of Yours today, Lord, are encouraged to rejoice in their great and mighty salvation that You've so freely given us. Lord, we ask You to be with us as we, as we remember and as we celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of our King by taking the Lord's Supper and remembering His beaten body and His blood that is shed for us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.